Hi. Um, I can't hear you. Oh. One second. All right, talk to me. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. I said so many things while you were just gently rubbing the mic against your face. Okay. Repeat them. What what did you say? (laughs) Mostly just trying to get your attention. I came in with the line, hello, nurse, which I thought was really going to get a chuckle out of you. Why would that get a chuckle out of me? I don't know, because they say it in cartoons. It's very cute. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're like, hello, nurse. And I always say, like, hello, Michael. So I felt like changing it up would, like... You know, I feel like that wouldn't be very cool these days for cartoons to have like their animals <laughs> being incredibly horny, <laughs> being horny for nurses. Yeah. Yeah. Political correctness. I know. I can't know. even have a horny rabbit on TV anymore. I know it's terrible. Can't even have veiled furry porn. <laughs> you can't. And as like we discussed last episode, you could have veiled furry porn in Chronicles of Narnia. Uh Right. Oh, my gosh. Well, hello, nurses aside. Mm -hmm. Hello, Michael. Hi, how are you? Uh, I have a... I'm good. I slept funny on my neck. Yeah. It's kind of hard to, like, move it around. sucks. I've been there. Grunge Girl's getting groceries, and I get to stay home. So wonderful. I know. It's the best. My boyfriend has been handling grocery shopping recently. It's been incredible. Oh, it's so good. It's so worth it. Grunge Girl does groceries and I do a lot of cleaning. Mm, yeah, similar. It's hard for me. I have a lot of guilt about it, though, because I hate grocery shopping so much that it's hard for me to believe that anyone could be okay with it, that like it could not be an ordeal. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it seems like for some people, it's like fine. <laughs> yeah, for some people, it's fine. And like, they don't want to deal with dishes, you know? Right. That seems to very much be the case and i'm cool with dishes i just like put on a podcast and yep, wash that's, some dishes. i literally was just doing that very thing before the show in fact it might be one of my favorite things to do wow well i wouldn't go that far but okay yeah i'm getting old <laughs> you like to putter i you know you know what i've been actually doing i've been thinking about i've been mourning my youth whoa yeah i've been mourning it feel like you should i don't know that feels like something someone writes poetry about <laughs> you know i'm expecting some some sestinas some Not sonnets me. i just complain to strangers on the internet about it in the form of a podcast right i make a podcast modern poetry get into it it's, it's the lazy man's poetry but yeah i was I, I just was mourning my youth like just in general or like do you feel like you didn't use your youth to its fullest potential mm, no just generally like I'm, I'm perceived as just a dude mm-hmm. with like a job and mm-hmm. a partner. Yeah. Uh, so that that's interesting. I'm just a guy. And you feel like you missed your opportunity to be like a a chanteuse, a street urchin. I feel like I missed my opportunity to you know make it big in Broadway. Oh no, well, no, yeah. I would kidding. say that that's probably. I definitely true. missed that. Broadway is much like modeling has like a very <laughs> limited range of ages that it is uh, interested in putting on the stage. Yeah, I don't know. Just uh just just you know thinking about that. Just feeling wistful. Just feeling wistful. Yeah. I get that. As someone who has in a relatively short time transitioned from literally living in a hut that I built myself in the rainforest mm. to living in a small apartment in a suburb of Rhode Island. <laughs> I really feel the transition to being just some person with just some stuff. Yeah, it's very humbling. Yeah, we're just people with stuff and a podcast. It's true. 
We're just like you, but we have microphones. That's the only difference. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it, people. We're casting off the magic spell this episode. <laughs> yes. Everyone thought we were so different. Everyone thought We've we were We've put special. up such a veil of perfection up until now. Uh, yeah. Now. And now that's all gone. So, you know, we had to leave Skeeter for like a full day, like a full eight hours. Yeah. Oh, I bet he didn't like that. He didn't like it. He didn't like yeah. it. I had to leave Ace alone for four hours yesterday, which was the longest he's been alone since being born. He seems like the kind of dog that wouldn't care. Yeah. He wasn't barking when I got home, so I assume he wasn't barking, you know, throughout, which feels like a very, a question the Talmud would love to answer is like, how can we be certain that someone's dog wasn't barking while we were away? Like, if you hear the dog barking when you open the door, then yes, but... If you don't, then no. So, yeah. So, I assume he was fine, but he is, like, very frantic for attention when we return. He really gives us that look of, like, I thought you were gone forever. Oh, I want to meet this ace. He's a baby. He's a precious baby. I guess I should post some pictures on the Patreon. Yeah, definitely. Patron-only dog pics are a big part of our Patreon now. Join our Patreon for patron-only dog pics and a huge selection of uh, our backlog of patron-only episodes. This has been my Patreon plug for the episode. Oh, you're drinking out of the mug that I gave you. Yeah, I drink out of these mugs all the time. They're nice mugs. They're very uh, very high up on my mug rotation. How are you, Hava? Baruch Hashem. I've been having a good day. I uh, just took the dog on the walk, and last night I had my first session with uh, some friends getting together to start a and d game. Oh, that's cool. Which is, this is my first time ever playing D&D which may shock some of you. Is this a live in-person game? Yeah, IRL. And we just spent the whole session this time helping each other get our characters ready. So it's just like this really sweet time where like a bunch of people were nestled together in the house, just sort of like speculating and coming up with fun ideas. And like the vibe of like a small group of friends just hanging out to help each other come up with cool roleplay ideas and eating snacks is like heaven basically <laughs> that's yeah. what i'm hoping the afterlife is it's just like an eternal D game totally totally it was our D salon that's so nice it was wonderful so that really has like brightened my week for all my people who care about video games i've been uh replaying elden ring again cracking hour 300 on this baby but i think i'm about done with this replay through i've like played I played a lot between now and the last time we recorded. So that's been fun. Yeah, just like things are going pretty good. I feel a little ad- adrift today, a little like, what am I doing with my life? Who am I? Mm-hmm. What's my deal? But for now, I'm feeling copacetic about drifting. So that's sort of the ideal, I guess. I love a drifty day. Yeah. It can be very peaceful. Oh, I, I was going to ask you, actually, I feel like we talked a lot about your boobs couple like a month ago but how right. how, how how have they how have been they doing yeah how have they been doing they're doing pretty good they've healed very well in terms of like pain or discomfort they're doing fine like there's no discomfort they're settling in a little more uneven than i would have liked although my boobs were uneven before surgery so like if you think about it it makes sense if you add like an equivalent amount of mass to two uneven boobs they will be uneven afterwards. But, you know, it's hard not to be 
self-conscious about it even though i hear all the time that everyone has uneven boobs like it's hard not to have feelings about it mm -hmm. well i think the solution is that you just have to go look at a bunch of people's boobs you know you got to get some context yeah i mean i just spent so long looking at boobs before surgery i'm sort of boobed out yeah i, <clears throat> I know that, that may not like seem possible to some people out there who really love boobs oh but... trust me i've been there baby <laughs> oh trust I've seen a lot of titties in my day, uh, you know, but just like I've just looked at pages and pages of boob results and the idea of like returning to looking at boobs is mortifying to me right now. Binders full of boobs, you know, binders full of boobs. Yeah. My boyfriend and I are considering moving back into his mom's house at the end of our lease. So that's wild. The first floor of the house that she rents is like its own apartment, basically. The only thing that's shared between them is the laundry machines. So it would be like a, basically a much nicer apartment than we have now, but like for three quarters of the price. And also we'd have a backyard. That's pretty sweet. I've, I think I've met your boyfriend's mom and Yeah, when you helped me move into this apartment. They seem very chill. They seem very Rhode Island relaxed. They're so sweet. They're so sweet. I, I think I may have told you this already, but we went to Thanksgiving at their house. One of his mom's clients came over. She does hair. One of her clients came over and it was like uh basically like an older trans lady biker chick and what? i was like well if you're the kind of person who your surprise thanksgiving guest is like an older trans lady biker chick then like you're probably cool in my book that is like a yeah. really good sign of character in my opinion <laughs> is like who is showing up who is surprising you at your family dinner yeah that's a that's a pretty good uh that's a good sign they just seem really relaxed, really, really relaxed. Yeah. They're so sweet. They're so, they're such Southern ladies. I mean, there's plenty of Rhode Island people who are basically like Massachusetts people, you know, a little bit high strung. Yeah, they're not that way at all. No, no, they're very low strung people. But I didn't want to move into his mom's house when we first moved in together because it was earlier in the relationship. I didn't know his mom as well, and I didn't know him as well, and I was like, moving in with you and your family at the same time is an incredibly terrifying prospect. Yeah, it is a little terrifying. But now I'm open to it. It sounds cool to me. I mean, I would move in with his mom. I know, but you're crazy. I know, I know, I know. I can't take advice based off what you would do. You would do anything. I think you've done crazier. I think you are crazier than me. Yeah, I mean, I've become boring in my old age i think you're more risk averse now than i am now i got my yayas out yeah yeah you like really got it out you like really went for i it. really really did <sighs> speaking of getting your yayas out yes russian doll season two episode three <laughs> yeah yeah good <laughs> oh yeah russian seamless doll. transitions here on the highly professional hi how are you podcast very professional yeah we're back we're back to our Russian doll to talk about season two, episode three, episode title, episode title, Brain Dead. Brain Dead. We open in Fair Verona, where we set our scene. Nadia asleep on the train. Yep. She's lost her Krugerrands. She's awoken by an MTA worker putting a quarter in her palm and being like, you need to get off this train right now. You seem very crazy, and the cops will come get you. So she goes to Ruth's house again. Annie Murphy 
looking incredible here. Very good. <laughs> looking fantastic. And then they go to an appointment for baby herself at the hospital. She has this interaction with her mother slash grandmother in the hospital bathroom where she realizes that she's understanding Hungarian now. And she didn't before because only her mom spoke Hungarian. Seems like a blessing and a curse. Well, it will slowly become more of a curse as the episode goes on. She has a lot of really good lines in this episode. One of them was in this dialogue, which was just first as tragedy, then as farce, etc. <laughs> like referencing the line history repeats itself. First as tragedy, first, then as farce. Uh, mm. Very really spoke to me and then the she's with the doctor and she's like do you think consciousness is an emergent property of the brain and the doctor is like uh no <laughs> yeah the doctor is just a doctor uh feels like something i would say to one of my doctors totally totally i have a bad tendency to like fuck with doctors a little bit i don't know if you do that too uh, no, I live in mortal fear of doctors instead. Oh, okay. I live in perennial manipulation of doctors to get what I need because yeah, they yeah, are, yeah. uh, the worst, the worst. Yeah, doctors are doctors. To are our one fun. doctor listener, except for you. Well, do we have a doctor listener? We have a, I don't know, yes, is the short answer. Well, thank you, doctor, for your service. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. We salute you. Then she goes back, and she's back at her mom's apartment with her mom's friend, Delia, who's Romani, who also went through the Shoah. I thought that was interesting, that we have like a, a Jewish-Hungarian woman and a Romani-Hungarian woman, and they're friends. I thought it was a strong choice. They're drinking liquor, and Delia's like, oh, I gotta go get the good liquor. We keep everything hidden. And Nadia's like, oh, hidden stuff. This is a great inspiration for me to look in the backs of all the picture frames. Yeah, And yeah. Uh, she finds, like, a hidden passport and a bunch of stuff. And she's uh, hunting for the gold train where the Krugerrands were stolen initially. She's like, what if I could find the rest of the family riches, basically? Yeah, yeah, to make up for the fact that she lost their Krugerrands this time around. Right. And so she goes to the New York Public Library, and she is looking at some microfilm, trying to figure out how to display it. Nadia's like, how do I look at these? And the librarian's like, I don't know. <laughs> She's like, isn't that your job? She's like, no, my job is to preserve them so someone can look at them later. And then Nadia says, oh, so you're immune to paradox, I see. Which, again, I thought was a great line. Paradox, big theme in this episode. So she steals the microfilms from the library and runs off to Crazy Eddie's. Yep, yep. She goes back to Crazy Eddie's. Oh, well, IMDb has the title of this episode listed as Brain Drain. So I don't know what the truth is. Here, but she goes back and talks to Danny at Crazy Eddie's, and she's in standing in a video feedback loop, which is very trippy. And he's like kind of hitting on her a bit, and he says, "I'm not just a Crazy Eddie's employee; I also edit a zine on the Debordian Spectacle." Yeah, that was which really I was like very intrigued. Society of the Spectacle. I looked it up; came out in 1967, so plenty of time for people to become obsessed with it by this point. I don't remember my Situationist readings enough to sort of recall how they might be influencing this series, but really intrigued by uh, any any Situationist connections there might be. What is the situ situation? Is just a fancy way of saying like the market economy is the thing that rules over all of us, or something? No, the Situationists were a, a school that, I don't know if it was started by Guy Debord, but was really part of 
his cadre in coming up with the Society of the Spectacle, they have their own, their whole own idea about how to deal with the issues of capitalism and what is necessary to rupture the alienation produced by capitalism. Again, I haven't read any situationist stuff. Oh yeah, Determinant. It's a really important situationist idea, which is like when someone is able to recapture something that's been captured by capitalism, recapture an idea or symbol. Anyway, this is not a situationist podcast. And it's been a long time since I read situationist stuff. Uh, not since I was in the Austin Anarchist Study Group so many years ago. So if you have any cool ideas about how how DeBoer and the uh, spectacle might be involved in the show, let me know. Maybe I'll think of them as the episode goes on. Enough about Guy DeBoer. So she goes back to her apartment because she got a projector from Danny to look at the thing. And she's looking over the slides. She goes into her bathroom and sees two notes stuck by the mirror. One that says, all the world was made for you. And the other one that says, everything is dust and ashes. We'll be revisiting that later in the show. Oh, okay. I'm surprised then that that isn't the thing you chose to bring. That was like the most famous thing in the whole episode. No, no. I tried hard to bring uh, the, the one of the next lines that comes up. Oh, great. Things are getting really freaky. We could start to tell in the library that things were a little bit off. Stuff is being shot with a semi-fisheye lens at this point to make it clear that she's going wild. There's like a weird bug in the bathroom, which really made me think of the fly near Alan's mirror in season one. And then there's like bugs in her skin. This part really grossed me out. She smashes the mirror and then she starts having hallucinations of her mom yes, being yes. there with her. And that's when it gets really... I mean, on one level, really interesting because we finally get to see Chloe Sevigny and Natasha Lyonne playing off each other, which I love, but also is just like really escalating the whole situation. And I think it's interesting at this point, they start to work together, the mom mm -hmm. and the daughter. There's this collaborative effort. They're getting along in comparison to earlier in the episode when Nadia is with Ruth and Nadia is complaining about her mother. I mean, it seems like Nadia as a child had a very people pleaser relationship with her mother that she falls back into. I noticed how often her mother calls her my smart baby. And I just feel like I can really see how that affirmation of you are a good child because you're smarter than everyone else and because you believe me instead of believing other people. The two things that are packaged just into that phrase, my smart baby, and how it's delivered, like really fucked Nadia up. <laughs> I'm thinking about how my parents spent a lot of time telling me, uh, they used to tell me anytime I would fuck up, basically, they would be like, if we thought God wanted you to be garbage man, we would want you to be the best garbage man you could be. But we think God has a higher plan for you. Oh, uh, which so really just up. set me up to be like perennially dissatisfied and guilty forever. To always feel like whatever I'm doing clearly is not fulfilling this divine purpose and that anything that's easy must be metaphysically bad. So I really like saw myself in this interaction between Nadia and her mother. It felt really similar to being called my smart baby. Oh, that's such a weird thing to say to a kid. It really is. I wasn't reading into the uh, kind of the weird traumatic relationship dynamic between them in the scene. I was much more picking up on they're collaborating and like enjoying each other's company. Mm-hmm. and that's a sign of the reveal that happens a few scenes from now 
when Nadia finds out that she's embodying her mother's mind too, not just right. her body, and begins to sympathize, I feel like, more with mm-hmm. her mother's situation. Right. So she's like freaking out in the apartment and um, having a lot of wild conversations with her mother. They talk about God. They talk about the form of God. Yeah, yeah, that Her was Her mother the thinks God is a tree or a wheel. Relatable. The library calls back with the information she needed and how the waffle stole the stuff and the... Uh, Just call them the waffles. Oh, no, the Schutzstaffel. I looked this up to, like, make sure that I had the right word. Schutzstaffel? They were basically some some the particular group of Nazis. Oh my god, I'm so silly. I can't believe I didn't think of that. It is SS in the episode. They say Schultzstaffel, not SS, and so that's why I like what didn't think of it being the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it clearly is. So the SS stole their stuff and put it on a train. That's what we learn. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Nadia has another great line where she says she's trying to mitigate the epigenetic K hole. <laughs> which I really liked that description of her project. She is picked up by the cops eventually and taken to a mental hospital, very similar to season one. When she gets picked up and she ends up crashing the van, she realizes that she's inside of her mother's mind too. The doctor is like, I will give you Thorazine, which is very scary stuff. Very rough medication. Really like the whole deal of being pregnant with herself and like, that exploration of God being pregnant with themselves felt like really extra relevant here Mm -hmm. with the scene of her in the hospital sort of sympathizing with being her mother. Almost like the reverse, like she has had the opportunity to think about how she would take care of baby Nadia if she was pregnant with herself. And now she has the opportunity to think about like the reverse of like how to take care of her mother or like how to extend empathy to that other part of herself. She escapes the hospital by making a rope out of sheets and gets on a train, goes back to the present, finds a note left by Alan, and then in the back of a photo frame of a picture of her mom, she finds a basically like a receipt, a Nazi document that says who the person was that took their stuff. Yeah, and a list of all the stuff that was taken, and then that's the end of the episode. And that is the end of the episode. Good episode, I thought. Super good episode. Very frantic. I feel like the most uh, innovative part of the episode that made it real real different from the others was the Chloe Sevigny interactions and mm-hmm. those hallucinations were really something kind of gave it a new flavor and the idea that Nadia is now empathizing with her mother a little bit mm-hmm. more Natasha Leon does a good job showing how afraid she is when she's in the mental hospital Michael you said you brought something different than what I expected what did you, what line were you talking about and what did you bring Well, the line that I focused in on, Grunge Girl was the one who pointed it out. And then we went and replayed it. When Chloe Sevigny is just kind of riffing while Nadia is thinking through the whole gold train situation. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, I think God is a tree or a wheel. I was like, oh, that's very interesting. God is a tree, you know, tree of life. We're pretty used Mm -hmm. to that idea. You know, the root of the tree is Torah or the Torah is the tree, whatever. You know, there's lots of the wheel I thought was interesting. I was looking a little bit for references to God as wheel, not any that I was able to find, but I was thinking about Ezekiel, like the angels that look like... Right, wheels within wheels. Yeah, 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 wheels within wheels. And thinking a little bit about 
how that relates to the whole shot in the episode with the videos with like oh right the video feedback loop yeah, the video that she's feedback in at crazy loop. eddie's but what i will bring was sort of unrelated to that uh it's okay. related to the whole like the whole epigenetic k-hole thing oh great i was looking more into what we talked about the last russian doll episode of how much free will we actually have mm-hmm. it was hard for me to find specific text where they're talking about free will so directly but there's a lot of indirect you don't have control over this you don't have control over that you don't have control over this Mm -hmm. one of these examples is from tanya which is written by schneer zalman right schneer zalman of liadi and the tanya big text foundational text of chabad there's a lot of wild stuff in there a lot of wild stuff this is a little quote it sometimes happens that the soul of an infinitely lofty person comes to be the son of an ignoble and lowly person etc all this has been explained by rabbi isaac luria of blessed memory in likute torah and in Ta'am my Hamid's vote on Parshat Bershit. This is my line. This is the kind of indirect stuff that I kept on finding, where it's like, you know, there are situations where a really righteous person is born to like a really unrighteous person. Mm-hmm. Zooming out, there's situations where who you are is not very, very intimately tied to where you've come from. And mm-hmm. we have metaphysical explanations for that provided by Isaac Luria, which we've mentioned Isaac Luria, Kabbalistic dude, Lurianic Kabbalah preceded Shabbatai movement. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, this quote in and of itself is not interesting. I tried to actually find what some of the metaphysical reasons are that, you know, you become different from your parents right. that are in the Likute Torah and the Ta'am Mai Hamitzvot. I wasn't able to find text of those. But this episode reminded me of a lot of the points I brought the last episode. This whole, well, we are all in the epigenetic K-hole. Together. Together. And at least in this text, the implication is that the default is you're going to be like your parents, you know? Mm -hmm. And I wish I could have found more of the metaphysics behind when that isn't the case, but I Mm -hmm. wasn't able to. So I brought something on the the whole world was created for you, but I also brought something because this episode was making me think about Dybbuk. What? Dybbuk? Yeah. Dybbuk's famous uh, Jewish folklore concept of basically spirit possession. Oh. Dybbuk comes from a Hebrew word meaning to cleave. And a dibbuk is usually like someone being possessed by a malignant or troublesome spirit. There's a similar concept also called ibul, which means impregnation. And that's usually when someone is possessed by like a helpful or holy spirit. Like if you, if the prophet Elijah possessed your body, that would be ibul. So yeah, I was thinking about it because I was thinking about Nadia as like possessed by her mother's spirit Ooh. or vice versa. You know, and I wanted to see if I can find anything cool about that. So I found two cool things. This is just a quote from this guy, Mordechai Lewis, on uh, his source sheet called Face on Safaria that I thought was an interesting metaphysical principle. So he's commenting on the verse that Hashim says, you will not be able to see my face for no human can see my face and live. The Midrash explains in their lives, they cannot see my face, but they can see at the moment of death. Why can't we see Hashim's face and live? Think of two magnets. Magnet A is bigger than magnet B. If you start to push magnet B closer to magnet A, eventually magnet B attaches itself with tremendous force to magnet A. 
We, our soul, are magnet B, and Hashem is magnet A, the master magnet. If Hashem would get close to us, aka reveal himself, our soul would pop out of our body like a dibuk and return back to its original source. So... That was just like very interesting metaphysically to think about like the greater spiritual force, according to this person's understanding of the Midrash, the greater literal magnetic pull on our souls. And to sort of think about like souls and reincarnation as like, uh, I don't know, just like there's a magnet up in the heavens and souls are just sort of like going back and forth between two poles of attraction very interesting. We go up to Hashem. Hashem reverses the magnetic polarity of our souls and shoots us back down to the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we're a cloud. Like we're there's yeah. a soul cloud. There's a soul cloud. You know, this was just making me think about reincarnation in general as like a thing that has come in and out of fashion several times in Judaism. Then I found this really interesting passage from Rabbeinu Bachia, who's this person who I really like. He wrote this book called Duties of the Heart. He is an important figure in both like early Spanish Judaism and also in the Sufi mystical movement. So he was like really straddling two worlds. Really cool person. So in his commentary on Devarim 25, he is talking about leveret marriage. So like the deal in Halakha where if you have a brother your brother is married and he dies, you have to marry his wife for reasons. He's trying to explain why did God make it so we would have to marry our brother's wife, basically. So he says, a Kabbalistic approach, the institution of leveret marriage is of great value to the soul of the departed. It is a known fact that a soul derives added enjoyment when it is allowed to resurface as a member of the family it had once belonged to, seeing as it already feels that it belongs. This is why the Torah writes on its introduction of the subject, when brothers dwell together. Our sages interpret these words as meaning leveret marriage applies only if both brothers lived on earth at the same time. If the youngest brother had been born after the oldest had died, then this mystical link does not exist between brothers. The underlying reason for chalitza, aka the removal of the shoe of the surviving brother who refuses to perform this mitzvah of leveret marriage, is that his refusal is considered an act of cruelty towards the soul of his deceased brother, and the removal of his shoe is a symbolic act signifying the severance of reciprocal feelings of brotherliness. This is the very expression used in Hosea 5.6, and the Lord withdrew from him, using the same verb here, chalitza, seeing as they had betrayed the Lord. Also, the expression na'alo is normally translated as his shoe has a dual meaning, as it is the same word na'al, locked out, as in locked the door. The surviving brother has locked out the soul of his deceased brother. So basically, the reason God wanted us to marry our brother's wives is so that our brothers could be reincarnated as our babies. Right, 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 yeah. So this just felt very, like, relevant (laughs) to our Russian Doll episode. Yeah, I guess I just feel like, in a way, I don't know, like, Nadia has the opportunity to be reincarnated as her mother, and her mother in this episode almost has, like, a chance to be reincarnated as Nadia. Like, both of them are getting a chance to be reborn into their family in different ways and in different roles that ties a little bit to what i was saying earlier about jews seem to be into this you can't escape the epigenetic k-hole and then this is a little bit of a metaphysical explanation of what could be going on there right because our souls are interested in being reborn in like uh 
familiar environments. This also makes me think about going back to what Mordechai Lewis said about Hashem as a magnet, like wondering like what other magnets are out there, sort of like pulling our souls around, you know, when we're floating around deciding where to be and reincarnated. I'm yeah. imagining like a landscape with a bunch of magnets in different places. And it's like, oh, I wanted to be reincarnated back into my family, but then I got like sort of sucked off on this random path to like be born into this other family. Just interesting to think about it as like both there's a strong magnetism pulling you back to familiar circumstances, which is like the epigenetic K-hole. And also there's the potential that some other powerful force is going to send you off in another direction. Also, does the soul have consciousness that the that the individual doesn't? I guess so. I don't know. Do you think consciousness is an original property of the brain? I don't know about that. <laughs> But maybe unconsciousness is an emergent property of the mm. soul. Shit, man. This all relates more than I thought to the uh, Yerba Dust and Ashes thing. So these notes that her mom has are from a very famous Jewish story. Martin Buber shares a version of it in his book, Tales of the Hasidim, where we read, It was said of Reb Simcha Bunim, an 18th century Hasidic Rebbe, that he carried two slips of paper, one in each pocket. One was inscribed with the saying from the Talmud, Bishveli livra haolam, for my sake the world was created. On the other, he wrote the phrase from our father Avraham, v'anochi afar v'efer, I am but dust and ashes. And he would take out and read each slip of paper as necessary for the moment. So this is what those slips of paper are for, or like referencing on her mom's mirror is basically, sometimes we need to be reminded that for us the world was created. And sometimes we need to be reminded that we're but dust and ashes. And I guess the wisdom of the Rebbe is knowing which piece of paper to pull out at which time. So I wanted to go and see like what was up with this, for my sake, the world was created. And it comes from this passage on Sanhedrin 37a, where they're talking about basically ways that the court can impress upon people the seriousness of false witness. And as part of this, they talk about one of the things that they tell the witnesses is, therefore, Adam, the first man, was created alone to teach you that with regard to anyone who destroys one soul from amongst the Jewish people, the verse ascribes to him as if he had destroyed an entire world. Again, a famous sort of Jewish ethical tenet. As Adam was one person from whom the entire world came forth. And conversely, anyone who sustains one soul of the Jewish people, the verse ascribes him credit as if he had sustained an entire world. And this serves to tell us of the greatness of the Hakadosh Baruch Hu, as when a person stamps several coins with one seal, they are all similar to each other. But the Supreme King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be he, stamped all the people with the seal of Adam, and not one of them is similar. Therefore, since all humanity descends from one person, each and every person is obligated to say, the world was created for me. This feels very epigenetic K-hole because it's very just being like, yeah, we all go back to this one source and there's just sort of like this inescapable flow from that one point. And part of the reason we say the whole world was created for me is because we're all sort of the potential of our existence was stored up in that moment. And I guess part of the corollary is like, we are all potential atoms we are all potential like uh, progenitors of other worlds. Sounds kind of Mormon to me, or something. You know? Yeah, it does actually. <laughs> now that you say that, it's, it's like, super okay, Mormon, well. uh, and that's why we should all have seven wives. 
Yeah. Um, at least. At least. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it just feels like Adam is like a really big spiritual magnet in terms of souls getting incarnated. And Nadia's mother contained all the possibilities of Nadia's world within her mm-hmm. before Nadia was born. And now, because of the power of paradox, like they are containing each other. Yeah. Which is very magical. Yeah. <sighs> it is very magical. It's kind of calming to me. Yeah. It, it breaks the illusion of the most free free will. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Basically, like, you don't have to feel as if you're completely in control of everything. And if only you didn't suck, then everything would be better. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's kind of like a, maybe a little Taoist. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, Ursula K. Le Guin said it in one of my favorite ways when she said in A Wizard of Earthsea, the greatest power is not the power to do, it's the power to accept. Yeah, yeah. It also makes me think about Nadia, like, really shows us toxic versions of both these aphorisms like for my sake the world was created especially season one nadia is like a complete loner you know she doesn't need anyone she'll be just fine by herself and also no one else's needs really matter to her it's just all about nadia and also the reason she pushes people away is because she views herself as incapable of good she thinks she's a piece of shit that will only hurt people AKA she's but dust and ashes. And so she's sort of living like the worst version of both of these sayings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like narcissism and self-destructive, relationship destructive, self-hatred. Pride and shame are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of lot of ethical lessons tucked in this this Russian doll. We all just need to chill out. Everyone needs to chill out. Yeah, the lesson is just chill out and like let the soul magnet take you where it will. Yeah, let the soul magnet do its thing. And <laughs> Anyway, I don't have a nice way to sum it all up, but we both all are and aren't in the epigenetic K-hole. And that's why we only call each other when we're in the K-hole. You mean like on the phone? I'm referencing an Arctic Monkeys song called Why Do You Only Call Me When You're High. Oh, okay. Anyway, it was a very silly reference. I hope you all enjoyed traipsing through this swamp of muddy metaphysical and moral mores this morass of metaphysical and moral mores there we go oh yeah Uh, that's a much more perfect way of saying it i certainly enjoyed traipsing through it with you i did too i feel like i'm ready for the rest of my day to be real calm and yeah i'm gonna just accept it i'm accepting the day just trust the magnet well we will be back next week with something yeah and we love each and every one of you and we'll talk to you soon